We are continuing on with our study this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 4 to 11. And would you take your Bibles and turn there, please? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. When hard things are good things. Listen to the Word of God. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage this morning and we talk about your divine discipline, I pray that you would help us to see it through your eyes. All of us have had earthly fathers where we may have had different experiences of what that is like. And so, Father, I pray that we would look at this in a way that sees it as you do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On August 7th, 1954, the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, featured one of the most, uh, one of the greatest mile matchups in track history. It was touted as the Miracle Mile because at that time, there were only two men on the planet who had ever run a mile in under four minutes, Roger Bannister and John Landy. And they were going to be competing head-to-head in what was called the Miracle Mile to see who was the fastest between these two men. Both runners were in peak condition. They had trained. They were ready for the games. And Roger Bannister, who would later go on to be knighted, Sir Roger, and work at Oxford College, Uh, had a strategy that day. He was going to go out strong but evenly paced, and then in that third lap, he thought he would kind of back off a little bit and save it all for that final lap. Well, plans changed during the race. Immediately, uh, as they got into this race, John Landy was pouring it on. And as they got to that third lap, he began to run even faster and stretched out this lead in front of Roger Bannister. And he said, I've, I've got to step it up or I'm not even going to be close. And so here he was running harder than he had run before, and he was gaining on Landy. Halfway through, he had closed the gap, and by the bell, when it rang for that final lap, they were dead even. But Landy began running even faster. And Bannister followed suit, and he felt like he was going to lose if Landy did not slow down. And then came the famous moment that was replayed thousands of times in print. 
And as they neared that home stretch, that final stretch, the crowds began to roar and cheer, wanting to see who was going to win. And John Landy could not hear the footsteps of Roger Bannister. And he made his fatal mistake, and he turned to look back to see where he was. And in that moment when he turned back, Roger Bannister saw his chance and broke by, and he won the race by just a few yards. John Landy lost the race because he took his eyes off of the goal. And the writer of Hebrews comes to us and he is concerned about his church and he's concerned about those believers taking their eyes off of Jesus and he writes for our benefit because he is concerned that we may do the same thing. You see, there are many people who start well in the Christian life that are eager to follow Christ Children make a commitment to Christ. Students do that. They go to a conference or camp. It's exciting. They come. They make a commitment. But there are few people who finish well. There are few people who keep their eyes on the goal and run hard to the end. All along the way, there are things that can distract us or trip us up. The busyness of life. I mean, we just get distracted by all these other things that we have to do that are, again, as we looked at last week, not necessarily bad things. They might be good things. But unless we are intentional about our relationship with Christ and what he's called us to do, busyness of life can distract us. There are the cares and worries of the world that can hinder us. The desire for other things or more and more stuff. There is that sin that so easily entangles us that the writer of Hebrews mentioned. And there is sorrow and suffering and even persecution that can discourage the believer and cause them to doubt God's goodness or to lose sight of the goal or take their eyes off of Christ. So how does God keep us on track? He uses discipline. By his divine discipline, he keeps calling us back to himself. And that's what this passage is all about. Now, I know that whenever I talk about discipline or whenever we come to that in the scripture, that that can be a difficult thing. It's not exactly a pleasant topic that we like to think about a lot. You know, we we prefer the more joyful passages or the wonderful promises that are there. It's only as we grow in Christ and become mature that we see the fruit of discipline and we appreciate how important it is in our spiritual life. And that's what I'm asking you to take to heart today. As we walk through this passage, to think about how God has worked in your life and is working in your life even today and to thank God for his discipline of us. Number one, God disciplines us because he loves us. And we see that stated very clearly in this text, that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. He's our father, and that's what good fathers do. They set boundaries for their children. They help us to learn self-discipline. They help us to mature and to put first things first in our life. And in verse 4, he reminds them, in their struggle against sin, No one had died yet. 
I mean, no one had paid that ultimate price. They had suffered from these other circumstances that he talked about through opposition and mocking or taunting or even the loss of property, but none of them had been put to death yet. That is going to come. That wave of persecution will pass through the Roman Empire, and there will be different waves of it under different emperors, just like there are today. But he does acknowledge that it is a struggle And here he's not talking about our struggle against that entangling sin. He's not talking about that, but he's talking about our struggle against evil, our struggle against those who would oppose us, our struggle against the powers and principalities in this world that stand in opposition to the things of God. They have been experiencing oppression and persecution. But even in that, God is with them, and he will use it for good. Now, when we hear that, I mean, that is hard for us to wrap our mind around. How can persecution be good? Ajith Fernando, who's a Christian leader from Sri Lanka, he wrote this, and he said that the church in each culture has its own special challenges theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. And I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The good life, as we think of it in America, includes comfort, convenience, and a painless life that for many have become sort of necessities, and if we don't have them, we think that something has gone wrong. And one of the results of this attitude, he said, is a severe restriction of spiritual growth, for God intends us to grow through trials. Interesting. God intends us to grow through trials. You know, in the lobby out here in our church, we have a banner that is there, and on that banner are 10 ways to pray for the persecuted church, and I don't know if you've taken a look at that lately. You can stop by and see that uh, this morning. But what always impresses me about that banner and the things that are listed there is that what many of us would put at the top of the list to pray for is not even on that list. I mean, I think most of us, when we think about praying for the persecuted church, the first thing we would want to pray for is for the persecution to end. I mean, you know, to stop this persecution and bring freedom for them as believers in Christ. But that's not even on their list. You know what they ask us to pray for? And this comes from Voice of the Martyrs. Pray that we would sense God's presence in our trials. Pray that we would not be forgotten by the greater body of Christ. What they want more than an end to suffering is our prayers for them. Pray that we would be comforted by God when family members are killed, injured, or imprisoned for their witness. 
Pray that we will have more opportunities to share the gospel. Pray that we would be bold to make Christ known. Pray that we will forgive and love our persecutors. I mean, isn't that just, that's radical Christianity. That is not the way the world thinks. And here are these believers who are going through this suffering, wanting to glorify God, wanting to live out what the Scripture says, and asking that we would pray for them in that way. The writer of Hebrews also reminds us And he speaks to them and says that you have forgotten God's word. And it is hard for us to maintain our perspective when we neglect the word of God. And so he quotes from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. See, one of the lies of the evil one is for us to think that if we're going through suffering and trials, then something must be wrong. God doesn't love us. He's not a good God. He doesn't care about you or all those kind of lies that he'll throw at us. Suffering and hardship does not mean that God doesn't love you. In fact, the opposite is true. God is treating you as a son. And there are two attitudes toward discipline that we should avoid. On the one side, he says, don't make light of it. Don't blow it off. Don't treat it as though it's nothing. Instead, a very good question to ask is, Lord, what are you trying to say to us? What are you trying to teach us through this trial in our life? And secondly, don't lose heart. I mean, don't give up. 1 Peter 1.7 reminds us that our faith is of greater worth than gold. Our faith is more precious to God than the greatest resources in this world. And so what he is doing is using those trials to purify and refine us so that we might bring him glory and we might be fit for heaven. God is treating us as sons and daughters. Now, there are three types of discipline that we see in Scripture, and we don't see this all explained here in Hebrews 12, but I think it's important to understand, so I want to bring it in at this point. Three types of discipline that God may use in our life. The first is corrective discipline, to turn us from sin. There are times when God steps in, and he gets our attention, and he does that so that we will repent of our sin. The psalmist in Psalm 119 said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You can think of David and his sin that he committed with Bathsheba and how he was trying to cover it up and ignore it or pretend it wasn't there even though he was feeling the weight of his guilt upon him. It took Nathan, the prophet, to come and confront David before he would admit it and repent of his sin. That was God's loving, corrective discipline. Discipline can also be preventive to keep us from sin. 
The Apostle Paul shared in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he had talked about these great visions and revelations that he had been given and how he had been caught up to the third heaven where he had seen things that a man is not permitted to speak. And he said this, he said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. And remember how he asked God to take that away? We don't know specifically what that thorn was, but he asked God to take that away, and God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, trust me. These afflictions, they're for your good. That without them, you might become proud and useless in terms of the kingdom. But because of what you are going through, I am going to use you. And thirdly, discipline can be instructive to teach us or show us something that will help us to grow or something that we had not seen before or it may be used by God simply to bring him glory when we stand firm in the midst of the trial and we hold on to Jesus and we trust him. Our faith is even a witness to the angels and the demons. You think of Job. Job, at the end of that book, talked about the trials that he had gone through and his suffering, which was great. And he came to the end of that after seeing this wonderful revelation of who God is and the way that he works. And he said in Job 42.5, that my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He learned things about God that he would not learn any other way. And Job was not a bad person. Remember in Job chapter 1, there was no more righteous man in all the earth. And yet Job still had things to learn about God that could only be learned through suffering. A number of years ago, before Abby Wambach and Mia Hamm and Hope Solo, there was women's soccer and the star athlete in the United States was Michelle Ockers. She had become an all-American soccer star, and she was named in 1985 ESPN's Woman Athlete of the Year. It was the year that the United States formed its first women's national soccer team, and she was a starter. She would go on to lead that team, and in 1991, the U.S. team won the first-ever Women's World Cup Championship. Michelle scored 10 goals in five games, including the championship's winner. She signed an endorsement deal. She became the first woman soccer player to have a paid sponsor. She played professionally in Sweden. And her drive and tenacity were really legendary. She even tried out as a place kicker for the Dallas Cowboys. Her longest attempt reached 52 yards. That's pretty good for a field goal. But just as her star was rising, Michelle's health was declining. And by 1993, the woman who used grit and determination to make life happen found her life unmanageable. Each day I felt like I had flown to Europe with no food or sleep and then flown right back and trained for hours. She was exhausted. She was suffering from chronic fatigue and immune deficiency syndrome at a time when Doctors really were just trying to gain an understanding of what this is like. 
When it was really bad, she said, I couldn't even sit up in a chair. The racking migraine stranded me at home, unable to even get up and brush my teeth or eat. For the first time in her life, Michelle could no longer count on her old friend's strength and hard work, and she had to find a new way to cope. I could not bear to not be the best in the world, to not be the one who could always bounce back from any injury or any adversity. It was the only me I knew. And four years later, her marriage broke up and Michelle had reached the end of herself. I was so sick that I couldn't take a five-minute walk without needing two days on the couch to recover. I mean, that's hard for someone who is healthy to even understand. And we have people probably who we know who suffer from chronic fatigue or other symptoms like this that are really suffering. And Michelle had put her trust in Christ as a high school student, but ignored God in college and after graduation. And now sick and alone, Michelle reluctantly accepted an invitation from a strength coach to attend his church in Longwood, Florida. Although she couldn't articulate it at the time, she said she knew she needed to get right with God. And looking back, she said, I think God was gently patiently tapping me on the shoulder, calling my name for years, but I continually brushed him off, saying, hey, I know what I'm doing. I can make these decisions. Leave me alone. And then I think he finally said, okay, and crossed his arms and looked at me sadly because he knew I was going to make a lot more bad decisions. It took total devastation before I would surrender and say, okay, God, you can have my life. Please help me. We could wish it wasn't that way for all of us, that we wouldn't be so stubborn or hard-hearted, but sometimes we are. And God lovingly and patiently comes alongside to discipline. And if we will not listen, then sometimes those disciplines get harder and harder until God gets our attention. We need to remember that God disciplines us not only because we are a son, but God also disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us so that we might share in his holiness. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. And he makes this comparison to our earthly fathers. And he says that our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. All of us had human fathers who disciplined us. And we respected them for it, he says. But I know that this is where it gets hard for some people to even hear this text or apply it. Because some of you had fathers that were not loving in their discipline. Some of you had fathers that were harsh or maybe even abusive in your life. And whenever you hear this and you think about God as a father, it is hard for you because that gets in the way. And God asks us to look beyond that and to think of him as that perfect father who does everything right. I know that the results of an absent or abusive father can be devastating. They can have long-term impact. 
And we see that in the lives of many people who we know or have read about. For example, recently I just read the book Sons of Wichita. It's about the Koch brothers. And here I, you know, I'm see the Coke sign K-O-C-H and I heard about this company and I knew nothing about this family. They have the second largest private corporation in the world. I mean, just behind Cargill in the United States. They are a large private equity corporation. And um, the two brothers who run Coke Brothers or this company, Charles and David, They're tied for number six on the list of richest men in the world with about 40-some billion dollars each. Maybe it's more by now, too. I don't know. But I look at that, and I think, okay, who's this family, and how did they get this great wealth? Well, when I read that book, it was like reading a soap opera or a melodrama where two brothers still work with the company, two brothers don't, and they are mad, and there have been lawsuits and fighting and things tied up in courts for years, and all of this played out because of this rivalry. And the author who was writing about this book made this statement. He said, all of it was driven by a lack of their father's love. All of it was driven by a lack of a father's love. Whatever they did, it was never enough. It was never good enough. Her dad encouraged that kind of competition among them and striving and proving themselves and going farther and doing more. And that's the way that they have lived their life. I read this about Elton John, too. In an interview with Rolling Stone, singer Elton John reflected on his father, and he said he wouldn't hold you. He would never say he loved you. I was afraid of my father. I was walking on eggshells the whole time trying to get his approval. He's been dead for a long time and I'm still trying to prove things to him. Asked what he meant, Elton replied, I still do things and I say, Dad, you would have loved this. His father died in 1997 without ever seeing him play live in a concert. His father physically touched him most when he was beating him. My mom always says that's just the way we did it in those days, and it didn't affect you. And Elton says, what are you talking about? It affects me every day. These are wounded people, and that explains a lot of their behavior and actions is this wound that they are still trying to fill, this love that they are still looking for. A father's love and approval are so important. Our discipline as dads of our children must be done in love. Firm, consistent, but loving. Without it, our children will grow up lacking the self-discipline that they will need to be successful as adults. The author's point is that if we submitted to our fathers and respected them for their loving discipline of us, how much more should we submit to God whose discipline is perfect? God doesn't make mistakes. He knows what we need. And finally, he talks about the fruit of discipline in verse 11. He tells us that it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. For those who have been 
obedient, for those who have seen God's goodness, for those who have responded to his correction and grown and become mature in Christ, it's yielded this great harvest. And you can see the fruit in your life, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of peace. Discipline is not pleasant at the time, he tells us. It's painful. It's like John 15 where our father is that gardener and we're the vine and he prunes us and when he prunes us, it hurts. But after he's done that and you see what he's done, you give thanks. And trials and suffering, discipline and correction are used by God to do that. They teach us things that we would not learn about God or about life in any other way. They deepen our roots. They strengthen our faith. And personally, I am so grateful when I look back for my parents, for teachers, for coaches, for pastors, for spiritual mentors who loved me and disciplined me when I needed it and corrected me and taught me and instructed me, I would not be who I am today apart from the grace of God and the way that he used those individuals in my life. But I can think of times when I was younger where it wasn't so pleasant to go through those circumstances. God uses all of these things to refine us. Pastor John Piper wrote that I have never heard anyone say that the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard many strong saints say that every significant advance I have made in grasping the depth of God's love and growing deep with him has come through suffering. Would you agree? You know, for most of us, when we think in our own life, those lessons that we have learned have not been in the times of ease and comfort but have been in the hard things of life. And that's when the hard things become good things. You see, all experiences of suffering threaten our faith in the goodness of God and they tempt us to leave the path of obedience, to think there's gotta be a better way, a different way, God isn't watching, he's not doing what I wanted him to do, why is this happening to me? And we question God's goodness, his wisdom, and God is trying to teach us. And when we hold on to God and we trust him even in our trials, we are a testimony to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Christ. We are a testimony to his worthiness. But the greatest thing that we can do in life is to hold on to him and to walk with him and trust him that he knows what he's doing in our life. I like that. I want to live like that. God's teaching me that even today. I am still learning. I am still growing. There are things that need to be refined in my life. What are the trials you are facing in your life, in your marriage, in your family? Are you willing to submit to God and say, here I am, Lord, you have all of me? Are you willing to learn the lessons even though painful? Are you willing to trust God and obey him and persevere through them so that he might be glorified and you might be refined? In those trials, remember God loves you, that God's discipline of us is corrective, 
It is preventive and instructive. Remember that God's discipline is for our good, to make us holy, to fit us for heaven. And the fruit of his discipline is righteousness and peace. Let's pray. Father, when I think about the work that you are doing in all of us, I am so grateful for your grace. And that you do not overwhelm us, that your will is good, and that you know just the right measure that we need at just the right time. And I pray that you would help us in these circumstances to hear your word speak to us clearly, to hear your Holy Spirit who comes alongside to comfort and encourage, to convict, to show us the way that we need to go. And I pray, Father, that we would live as your children in this world in a way that others could see the difference that Jesus Christ has made in our life. We pray this in his name. Amen. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.